You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are uh, nearing the end of this series called Resolve. What we've been talking about since the beginning of the year is how to bring about resolution or solving issues in our personal lives, conflict resolution, which is a skill I believe everybody needs to learn. And honestly, um, you don't. (laughs) At least, not naturally. It just doesn't come to us naturally. Conflict resolution is one of those things that takes a lot of work, um, kind of goes against our uh, broken, fallen human nature, and it's tough. It's really death resurrection stuff. And um, I think that's appropriate. So today, we're looking at another area of this. We're coming to the end of it. And we're going to be focused on a phrase simply from the gospel, or from the letter of Ephesians, chapter 4. And it's this phrase, members of one another. Members of one another. That's what we're going to be kind of rotating around this entire time. Because what's the point? First of all... What's the point of conflict resolution? Is it to be right? Is it that you want to um, win? Do you want to win an argument, or do you want to win a friend? That's kind of some of the issues that we have to deal with. Are you looking at resolving, reconciling a relationship, or are you just trying to get over it, whatever that is? And I think in our society, there are a lot of people who would say, why even try? resolving conflicts. I mean, why bother? It's just much easier these days to drop them, move on, and get on with your life. And a lot of people have done that. But it goes against this whole idea of being members of one another. It also kind of defies the reality. We're going to be talking about reality a little today. The reality of how God has made us and the reality of how this world actually works and how you are who you are and how I am who I am. Um, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, would be astounded if you thought, well, you know what? Why should I even try? He would kind of scratch his head to figure out why you would want to try to live independently of everyone else and just do your own thing. Because what we've been experiencing in our society is what I call hyper-individualism, okay? Where it's all about me, it's all about what I want, it's all about what I feel, it's all about what I do. Um, Since the Enlightenment, Okay? It was a period of time in Europe where they broke free from, quote, external authority, especially the church, and they were looking for the authority placed right here. From speakers like Descartes, who said, I think, therefore, I am, to Freud, who basically told you that the things that are wrong with you are because all the people around you are oppressing you, suppressing you, and, and you need to break free of everyone else and everybody else. Don't let anybody tell you what to think, what to feel, what to do. No, you have to be in charge. You need to be in charge of yourself. You need to push yourself. You need to assert yourself, define yourself, fight for yourself, market yourself. As if you are who you are by what you feel, think, and do. 
And you know where our hyper-individualism has led us? Michael Bonner wrote recently, um, it's kind of a long quote, but I think um, it's going to be a good one for you to understand. He says this, social networks are getting smaller. Time spent alone is rising. Three in 10 households consist of one person. Only 30% of Americans think they can readily trust one another. And 16% of Americans feel strongly attached to their local community. Wow, only 16%. The number of men with no close friends has increased fivefold since 1990. Guys, we're in trouble. Suicides have increased in the United States since the end of the 20th century, as have deaths of despair. In 2016, Europe was found to be the most suicidal region in the world by gross rate. Average life expectancy in America has begun to decline. This is before COVID. This is all before COVID. Young people, too, are increasingly unhappy. The percentage of teenaged Americans who claim not to enjoy life, who believe that their lives are not useful, is now just under 50%. Half of teens aren't enjoying life at all. Is that a nearly 20% rise since the 1990s? Hopelessness, despondency, and a sort of flatness have been invoked to describe the dominant feeling of our time. Now, Paul and other biblical writers would not be surprised at these statistics at all because that's what happens when you're not dealing with reality. And what I mean by reality is I'm not who I am because of what I've made of myself. I am who I am when I am with you. I was made for relationships. You were too. We were created by a God of relationships, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to live in relationship with God and with others. There is never, I mean, from the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, God says it's not good for man to be alone. Somehow we think now it is. Huh. Isn't that funny? How is that? How have we gotten to the point where I'd rather be alone than connected? Uh, I was reading a recent book, and uh, it, I think it said it this way. Um, addiction, addictions in our world, and they have really grown. Addiction is disconnection. That's where addictions come from. It's disconnecting from everyone else. It's isolating. And uh, recovery is community. And I see an addictions counselor right here, John, right? Yeah. Amen to that, huh? Yeah. So Christianity was never considered a solo sport. <laughs> okay. By the way, most solo sport athletes, what do they have? Coaches, if they're any good, right? Yeah, they have coaches. They have teammates. They still do. We're members of one another. So let's read from Ephesians chapter 4, 25 to 5, 2. And uh, like I've said, by the way, we don't know. I think I can probably track it down. You can Google it. Where did we come up with Bible verses, you know, and chapter divisions? It was in the Middle Ages. It was early Middle Ages. And I think some of the times they didn't get it quite right. In fact, it seems like uh, the, the old story I heard back in my seminary days is, some monk was riding a donkey, and any time it bucked, he put a new verse in. Because so, um, I'm having to go over a chapter into another chapter because the division is just odd. It shouldn't be this way. So let's read, shall we? 
And by the way, you can get all of these um, notes for this from the, Google, uh, from the UVersion Bible app. And that QR code, if you put your phone up to it, will take you right to it, OK? And oh, I forgot a couple announcements. Yeah, James, you're right. Tonight's a hangout. We've got pulled pork. And uh, we'd love to have you come. So, um, but um, also, uh, we're having a trivia night for our mission trip to Guatemala in um, about two weeks, OK? On uh, Friday, February 16th. And Katrina, what happened Friday night? We went to another church and did trivia against 20 teams. And what did we do? We won. Right, Otto? Yeah, we win. I know. I, I'm not try. I mean, we weren't. We tried hard. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got to be on the right team, right? You got to be on Thrive Team, right? Yeah. See. Yeah. So uh, come for it's a fun night. We've got a number of categories already put together, and I will take bribes. So. But it's really for a good cause. The mission trip is coming up in the first week of March uh, to Guatemala. Um, so you can sign up for that if you're individuals or as a team of eight, six, eight people. We'd love to have you. OK, back to the text. Um, Ephesians 4, 25 to 5, 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him rather labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As Paul says in that first verse that we are members one of another, I think he is saying this is how it works out in two basic ways, by living in truth and by walking in love. By the way, there's no such thing as truth without love in the Bible, and there's no such thing as love without truth in the Bible. And there is some tension sometimes between the two of them, but they have to be held together. If you're going to be loving, you have to be truthful. And if you're going to be truthful, you better be loving, or you're not being either. Got it? But we're going to look at living in truth first, where Paul writes this in the first verse we read. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, I think most of you would agree uh, truth is a rare commodity these days. <laughs> we are in a crisis. And it's not just because of all the misinformation and the blatant lying people are doing. I think it's also because people are not living the truth. You see, the truth in the Bible is not just words. It's not just information. It's basically aligning yourself with the truth and living according to it. And you might ask that question, Pilate asked famously one time, 
what is truth, huh? I think one of the best ways to say what is truth is, truth is reality, <laughs> okay? It's reality. It's the way things really are. It's the fact that God has created this world in such a way that it is totally relational and interdependent. That God has created this world in such a way that everything can work in harmony is set up to be. And when you live according to the way God has created you and this world, things go pretty well. But as somebody has once said, when you work against the grain of the universe, you're going to get splinters. In other words, people living not with the truth, but against the truth, trying to fight against it, often end up with more problems in their life than they can ever know. Sometimes it's just believing in certain lies that I am more, you know, the lie of I'm independent. I can do whatever I want. I can, um, <laughs> I can be what I, the, we never told our kids this. And maybe, maybe you were trying to build them up when you did, if you did. But we did not tell um, Emma and Justin ever, saying, you can be whatever you want in this world. <laughs> and you might go like, that sounds, yeah, I think that's a lie. And I'm not saying it's a lie to try to cut them down. It's that they have gifts and abilities. They're doing great. They are to be everything God has made them to be. They are also be, to be aligned with the gifts. It's like you can use all the gifts and abilities that you have. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And when you use all that he has given you, you can contribute and serve this world in deep ways that is both meaningful to you and a great contribution to society. That's a lot different than you can be whatever you want to be. If my kids thought they could be president of the United States and, and pushed for that the rest of their lives, they are probably going to be miserable, especially if they became president. Have you ever known this? <laughs> right? If they think they're going to, that their goal in life is to become a billionaire or a trillionaire, they probably are going to be miserable. It's just not reality. It's also not reality to think that I can live my life the way I want and don't tell me what to do ever. You're going to be miserable. Probably won't have many friends, or the friends you have will be only transactional by nature. So you need to live in truth. Now, some of you go like, that's me. I, I tell the truth. I tell it like it is. Uh, great. Do you have somebody like that in your life that just tells it like it is? Do you think they're living in truth or just liking to use truth to their advantage? Yeah. So there's a movement called um, by an Oxford philosopher, J.L. Austin, about the performative nature of words. And he's, he wrote a book called How to Do Things with Words. And what he developed, and it's come to the United States, is the understanding that words are not just information. They have an intended action. So when you speak the truth, why are you speaking the truth? What are you trying to accomplish with the truth? For instance, do you speak the truth to put somebody down? That's what some people do, right? I spoke the truth. Yeah, but for what end? Do you speak the truth to flatter somebody, to get something from them? Do you speak partial truth? 
what I spoke was true, but to hide the rest of it. Do you understand? There are many ways you can say I'm speaking the truth and not living in the truth. And Paul says in Ephesians, by the way, um, also in 429, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you see why you speak truth? You speak it for the sake of building up. And yeah, I know, I'm doing another Greek word. Okay, Wayne? But it's fascinating. I was looking at this, and AJ helped me with this. Oikodome is the word to build up. And it comes from two Greek words, oikos and dome. Oikos is where we get not just Greek yogurt, you know, have you seen that? No, oikos, the word oikos means house, or it's where the word we get economy. Dome, domicile, right? They're both words about the house. They're both about building up. And the metaphor is edification or actual spiritual advancement for other people. So when you speak truth, you are to be speaking it for the sake of the other to build them up not tear them down, not tear them down. And what Paul's really saying is not that they're a house and you're a house, but we are one house together. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit together. You will notice, I think there should be a Southern translation of the New Testament specifically, because most of the yous in the New Testament are actually all y'alls. Have you ever done an all y'all? I've lived in the South enough, even though I'm a Yankee from the North, and you need to do some all y'alls sometimes, or you alls at least. The you alls, they go pretty far, but the all y'all really includes everybody, right? And the point is, all y'all are together God's house. All y'all are to pray. All y'all together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are very few ethics in the New Testament that are not communal ethics. They're all about relationships, all about y'all, y'all together. Y'all, y'all? Wow, I just did a new one. <laughs> you all, you all. <laughs> okay. But, um, and I, so when you take a sledgehammer in a house to uh, the kitchen sink, it impacts the whole house, doesn't it? And if you'd punch a hole in the roof, everything's going to get it wet on a day like today. You cannot tear someone else down in the community of Jesus Christ without damaging the whole house. I wish we'd understand that. Man, you know what I think is a foil? <laughs> a perfect foil? for what the community should be is an HOA meeting. <laughs> I've brought this up so many times, I just cannot believe how tearing down everybody, ripping people to shreds, not even talking about the issue anymore, we're just ripping into people, and somehow that is anti-community, but we're a close, you know, a gated community. Yeah, not so much a wonderful community. And if you don't know yet, and you, one, uh, you will if you go to an HOA meeting, okay? <laughs> um, Tim Keller, uh, in 2016, in, uh, quoted some scholar, and I couldn't track down on even using Google this quote. 
Um, but he quoted this scholar about how society works often or isn't working. He's, he, and the scholar wrote this, imagine a society in which no one trusted anyone to keep a promise in which every leader was expected to lie as a matter of course, in which every teacher was suspected of being an academic cheat, lying about their research findings, in which every religious leader was a moral fraud, in which every legal contract was not expected to be honored. So no legal partner could ever bank on the loyalty of another. No one could make a decision with any assurance of having the facts at hand. The economy would collapse. There would be no way to keep the rule of law. The whole society would collapse. This was in 2016, but boy, doesn't it sound like 2024. Ouch. We've gotten farther along that. And I'm sorry, you might like certain leaders right now, but everybody's engaging in this. We're tearing things down and tearing ourselves apart. To what end? You cannot build up by tearing others down. Now, you might be saying, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't we have to, isn't there some things that need to be demolished? We'll get to that. Just hold on to that, okay? Yes, things need to be demolished, not people. Just let's say it. Things are demolished, not people. Never. I mean, the Bible's, I'm off topic, but the Bible's pretty clear. How can you say you love God, First John says? when you hate another human being who's made in God's image. If you cannot see the image of God in the people who oppose you or think differently than you, then you are missing out on a basic fundamental quality of what it means to be related to every human being on this planet that God has set up. You're taking an argument with God. Things get torn down, not people. Back to this, though. We could probably rewrite this in a much better way. Um, but I'm going to jump a couple slides, Wyatt, and get to second century AD. There was a man named Diognetus who wrote an epistle. Okay, And in it, he basically explains what Christian community looks like. You can read the whole thing. I've got quite a long quote in this, but the whole thing is amazing. He says, for the Christians are distinguished from other men, ah, we got it, right, neither by country nor language nor the customs that which they observe. In other words, we look like everybody else. In the second century, he was saying, hey, these people are coming from everybody, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, so you can't define them by a certain ethnicity or certain way of life, in a sense, in that way, according to a lot of each that has, uh, of them has determined and following the customs of natives in respecting to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. He was definitely apologizing, not in a, I'm sorry for the Christians, but saying this is what makes Christianity different. In the second century, this is within 100 years of Jesus, death and resurrection. This is just after all the apostles. This is the way it has, was supposed to be and continue to be. And somehow, I think we've lost some of this. So he says, they marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Infanticide, especially when uh, girl, baby girls were born in Roman Empire, were just thrown out into the streets. They were unwanted. 
Yeah. They have a common table. Everybody's welcome to eat with us, but not a common bed. Fidelity within marriage. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. And they are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Isn't that amazing? What has happened, <laughs> right? What has happened that we are so far removed from this, at least in the United States? I have a feeling there are Christians in other countries that still are living this out, especially when they are being persecuted in minorities. I got to see it myself personally in India, where the Christian minority was being damaged and harmed. Just recently, 300 churches in a certain province uh, near Bangladesh were burned down and Christians persecuted and beaten. Um, it's not officially sanctioned by the state at all, but it's like everybody just turns their back and lets it happen by this mob or that mob. And that's basically what was happening as well in the book of Acts. It's not that the government of Rome was trying to do it directly. It's all these different groups that were persecuting then. But here in the United States, um, wow, it's changed. I don't know. Maybe I don't, re I don't really recall a time when we were living like this in my lifetime. But I'm looking going like, that is the ideal that Paul set up. And they were living it for a while. Hmm. But John, the truth is, sometimes, against. You know, sometimes there are things that go awry, especially within the Christian church. And I have heard and I have seen, you might be saying to yourself, where they've just covered it up and acted like everything's nice. Oh, we don't have to talk. We don't want to talk about that. Now, Paul does say things need to be torn down. And I'm skipping another slide here. But this is what he says gets torn down in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We destroy, demolish arguments. See? And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We tear down arguments. We tear down anything that gets in the way of God's truth and love, but we do not tear down people. We build them up. Yes, demolition takes place. <laughs> Maybe you've gone through home renovations, and oh my gosh, it's messy when you have to do it. But demolition is never the end goal. It's never the end goal to tear things up. It's always the end goal to build up, to edify. And that's why Paul would say in our second point that that happens when we are walking in love. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, I know, Wayne, here we go again. But um, 
C.S. Lewis wrote a famous book called The Four Loves, in which there are four Greek words that he went through about love. And actually, I found out there are six. But <laughs> not to contradict C.S. Lewis, there are two, xenia, which is hospitality, and, and um, philiata, uh, uh, basically self-love. We don't need to look at those. These are the four that he went through, storge, eros, philo, philia, and agape. And what's fascinating is each one is used for a specific type of love. Storge is that um, family, clannish love, where it's like, hey, we're a family. We're going to stick together no matter what. It's a loyal love of being in, and, and you do it even sometimes when you feel like you're stuck with these people. Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> right? But you still do it. It's an important word. But you do it for a reason, because, you all, because of the blood ties. There's a reason behind it. And eros, eros is that romantic love. It's where we do get the word erotic, but it's really that romantic falling in love head over heels with someone. But you usually do that because, hey, she's, you know, there's something about her or him that you go like, wow, I'm attracted to that, right? Philia is friendship love. It's where we get Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Philia is a friendship love where, hey, you like, you like that? I like that. Let's do it together. So it's because you like what they like, you become friends, which is wonderful to do. Agape is different than them all. Agape loves for the sake of loving the other, period, unconditional. And it's amazing when you look through these four words that in the Greek world, outside of the New Testament, agape is hardly ever used. It's because the Greeks believed that real love, love really is always transactional. You love because you get something out of it, right? So um, you love because um, you love because you, I like you. That's why I love you. Or I, I am attracted to you. That's why I love you. Or I know you, if I love you, I will gain something from you. But the New Testament, here in this passage, and any time it refers to God's love, almost always uses agape. It's a love for the sake of the other without concern for self. And Paul says in this text, you are to love one another. And he doesn't say, now, it's because logically this makes sense. No. He doesn't say, because um, here are the 29 immutable laws of love. He said, be imitators of God as beloved children. Do you understand? All you're doing is reflecting what God has done for you. You're the beloved of God. You are the beloved of God. There's no question about that. And you walk in love because Christ gave himself up for you. No wonder why Leonard Sweet says it this way. God didn't say, I love you. God loved. God lived in our midst and loved us. That's the reality. Um, the middle-aged theologian Thomas Aquinas, when he got to the word God, whether it's in Latin, Greek, 
English, whatever language he was working with, he proposed that maybe we should grammatically consider the word God not a noun, but a verb. Because God is known by what he does, and what he does is he loves. And the kind of love he has is a self-giving love that pours out everything for the sake of the other. And why uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, said in the end that love creates its object. It doesn't find it. It doesn't go like, oh, that looks good. So you are loved not because you're lovely. You are loved not because you're lovable. You are loved because God loves you. Isn't that amazing? You know what's so good about that is then I don't have to worry about anything. Oh my, today I am in a bad mood. Maybe God doesn't love me so much. No. Man, things are going, maybe it, there is no maybe. There's no if, there's no loophole, there's no exclusion. God is love. And for God to love means something that is so radical that the Greco-Roman world, the cultures around the world just never have understood it. But the Christian gospel says a God who is loved chooses to give up his power and his glory and face the vulnerability of being a human. Scott Peck, in his book, The Road Less Traveled, says there are, can be no vulnerability without risk. There can be no community without vulnerability. There can be no peace and ultimately no life without community. And God has so sought community with you, he gave up everything. So that when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't come with a special spiritual Kevlar jacket around him. He didn't have any armor. He didn't have a jillion angels at his bidding at any time that he'd face a difficulty. He faced it all head on. We see that from his birth when he is a refugee in another country to the wilderness where he is absolutely hungry and starved for 40 days in the wilderness to where when he comes to his hometown and opens up his heart about who he is, he's rejected and despised and ridiculed to ultimately at the cross where he gives all and is absolutely turned away and hated and spit upon. And yet God loves. Leonard Sweet puts, love trembles because intimacy hurts. Love is painful. The preciousness of love is matched by the precariousness of love. Love cannot be controlled, only cultivated. There is no love without loss of self and loss of control. Love is the hardest thing in the world to get right because when you give up control, you consent to uncertainty and unpredictable outcomes, yet losing yourself to find yourself is the best way to love. And we only do any of this at all in any imperfect way is because God has done this already in Jesus Christ. Jesus offers all. He gives up complete control being nailed to the cross. Isn't that amazing? I hope that melts your heart. I hope that just touches you deeply to understand God has so wanted an intimate fellowship with you. He left nothing to get in the way. And it's not that he paid a lot of money or things that he could. He gave the uncreated son the most costly gift to this world. 
that whoever believes will have eternal life. So Christians, we need to be known as the people who really love that deeply, that walk in truth and live in, that live in truth and walk in love. And I think the Christian church, why so many people are walking away from it today, and we've got about 30% of the population now that says, hey, you know, I'm nothing in particular. It's not that they don't believe in God. It's not that they haven't had experience with Christianity. It's the fact that we are not out of date. Too much of the Christian church is out of depth. Too many churches are shallow, let's be honest. Too many churches are like the movie theater. You know, you go to, you've watched the show, you enjoy it, you get a little uplift, you go home, but you're never connected to anybody else in the audience. What good is that? Is that what Diognetus talked about? I don't think so. Is that what Paul talks about here? We're members of one another. And it isn't that, okay, we've got to do it. We've got to figure it out. We've got to, no, no, God has placed us together. God has brought you in. He has adopted you. You are members of one another. I am praying and hoping that as I think I've heard from a number of you, as anyone who would enter Thrive, whether it's here or in any other fashion, whenever they meet anyone who's connected to Thrive, they feel immediately, they know immediately that they are welcomed, that they are loved, that this person is going to be willing to serve and to give. And they can join into that fellowship. Now, some people may not want it. We'd rather stay out, <laughs> right? We'd rather almost just be entertained and walk away. But I think there's a, a really deep hunger and thirst right now, especially in younger generations, for something more. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this in his book, Life Together. Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God and Christ that we might participate. In other words, God has set this up this way. This is the reality. You have been created for community. You have been redeemed for community. You are members of one another, period. He has given this to you. So I want you to do something kind of a little odd right now at the end of the sermon. If you've got somebody sitting next to you, maybe somebody's not related to you, turn to them right now and say, I'm going to love you. Do it, yeah. OK, and now turn to them again. And turn to them again and say, and you are going to love me. And now say the third thing. We are members one of another. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day, for this time together in the word. This is not about just resolving a conflict here and there to make life a little more peaceful. This is all about the fact that you want us to live in community, not just now, but the currency of eternity is your love and the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you invite us into. We thank you for that, Lord God, that we are absolutely unconditionally <laughs> graciously brought into this fellowship, Lord Jesus, and that you open yourself up to the pain and agony of this world. We're amazed that you would do any of these things. Now we lift up to you those in our 
uh, community and in our care and concern, Lord, beyond our community who need you deeply now in their own pain and difficulty. We pray for Tom Hay as he continues to try to figure out what's going on as with the doctors and nurses. We pray your healing there and you are present in his life that he can be active in serving you again. We lift up to you little Sutton who was taken into the emergency room with RSV in Cincinnati. We pray, Lord, healing on her at just an age of five months, Lord. We pray that you protect her and keep her in your care. We lift up to you, Bob and Joan in North Carolina, still connected here to Thrive, and pray that you would bring your healing as Joan recovers from a surgery and Bob is dealing with uh, both his ailments and pneumonia at the same time. Lord God, um, we lift up to you, Mike and Dick Grisky, as Mikey now has COVID. We pray for anyone, Lord, experiencing illness now that you bring your healing and even more your healing presence into their life. Lord, we lift up our mission team. We thank you for the work and how you are preparing them along the way. We pray that you continue to grow them and through the whole experience of that mission, Lord, in uh, Guatemala, they come back rejoicing and amazed at your goodness and grace. We lift up to you, O Lord, um, the Bishop of Tanzania, uh, of uh, the Anglican Church there that Mulamu uh, and uh, Martha will be hosting this week. We ask that you'd bless his time here. May he be edified and built up during the fellowship events. Lord God, we thank you for um, this mission both to FGCU and to the greater community and pray your will is done and your kingdom comes among us. And we know your kingdom is coming among us, Lord, because you are present here this morning, wherever two or three are gathered. And therefore, Lord, we confess as well, we're not really worthy to be in your presence. We have sinned against you in our thoughts and our words and our actions by what we've done, by what we haven't done for others. We haven't treated each other as members, one of another, Lord God, forgive us. Because if we say we had no sin, we are just deceiving ourselves. But as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and forgive us, Lord God, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Prepare us, O Lord, as we offer ourselves to you along with our tithes and offerings this day, and prepare us as we will receive you, Lord Jesus, in the Lord's Supper in a few moments. All these things and many other concerns and prayers that are on our hearts and minds this day we offer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.